0: Like I said, this is just an introduction to our next set of uh, uh, verses here in, in Thessalonians. So we'll be in 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be introducing these verses as we continue our study through this book. And remember, the, the, this church, this young church, was basically at a point where they were enduring a lot of Persecution. There was a lot of uh, stress going on and, and paul a lot of pressure in their lives and Paul was trying to give them a little hope because uh, he knew what they were going through because he was going through the same thing and um, We know the whole backstory to this, so here they you have this small congregation they were under pressure, and they were been faithful up to this point to persevere in their in their faith, and they were being steadfast, but the persecution. Didn't slack off. It it heightened even more. And sometimes we think, well, if we're doing the right thing in our Christian walks, right, then God's just going to make everything easy. <laughs> and usually it's the opposite, right? When everything's easy, watch out because that's when you'll get hit. And so uh, He wanted them to know that they had to continue to. Endure. They had to continue to be steadfast, and in order to encourage them, he reminds them of something in verse, uh, beginning in verse six of of Christ's second coming. And so, I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read this, just verses six to ten this morning. But Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six to ten, Paul writes this: Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8, Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might, verse 10, and when he comes on that day to be glorified with his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Father, we thank you for this word and pray. We just introduced this text this morning that you would give us hearts to understand, minds to understand, and, and ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is really the climax of all history, if you think about it. Now, don't get this mixed up. Remember when we went through First Thessalonians, we talked about the rapture of the church, right? Christ coming back, but he doesn't come all the way back to the earth. His feet don't put, aren't set down on the Mount of Olives. He, it says that he comes and we go to be with him. He, we meet him in the clouds. And so he takes the entire church off the face of the earth. That's going to be a devastating time for those who are left behind. And then the, you have a seven year period of tribulation and then you have basically the Lord coming back to earth and he will establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years and we will be with him and we will, he will rule and reign the Bible says with an iron fist. So Uh, It's going to be a a wonderful time, and yet there's also, when you think of the coming of Christ, that's why I I listed the, the message, the joys and sorrows in God's final judgment. There's going to be joys and there's going to be sorrows involved in these next several verses that we read. If we know Christ, there's going to be a whole lot of joy involved when Christ comes back. Amen? We're longing for the return of our Savior. Not just the rapture, but then ultimately when we come back with him at his second coming. But there's also going to be a lot of sorrow for people who do not know Christ. They haven't put their faith or trust in Christ. And uh, in order to encourage this struggling congregation with all the persecution they were going under, he reminds them that Christ is returning. He's coming back. And that should be our hope. That was their hope. And if if you look at anything, you can look at that and go, wow, you know what? One day we will be freed from this body of sin and death, and we will be in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, just yesterday, we got a call. Uh, Ken got a call from Connie Shaflant. She used to come to the Bible studies here and stuff, and her husband, Buddy, uh, passed away. And he had been reeked with cancer. He had cancer of the spine, and so he had been slowly declining the last several months. But this was a man who was very, uh, you know, he's in his 80s, but he was very vibrant. He had a long, good life, in my, my estimation. I mean, he was always going up and down our street, helping people with their grass. And If he saw somebody's front yard wasn't cut, he'd go and he'd cut it. And, and just, you know, just an amazing. He always cleaned out the gutter of all the leaves of everybody's uh, in front of their houses. And, and just a real blessing to our neighborhood. But you saw him slowly over time as this cancer just penetrated his body and, and went through it. Pretty, you know, the last time I saw him, he was in bed. He couldn't even barely open his eyes about a week ago. And so we knew this time was coming. But to think that in a millisecond, he is freed (laughs) from that corpse that was there yesterday when I got there. And I had to remind his wife, this is not your husband. This is just a a body that he held on to for 80-some years. This is his tent. And now it's it's just, you know, it's going to be delivered back dust to dust. And so she totally understood that. And, you know, really the both of us were talking and we were a little bit jealous. We're thinking, man, <laughs> you know, that'd be great <laughs> to be in that situation, to be freed of, of having to get older and dealing with all these things and just be, boom, you're in the presence of the Lord. Well, one day Christ is going to come back. And whether it is the rapture or whether it is the second coming, um, there is going to be a lot of joy in that moment. But there's also going to be a lot of sorrow. Uh, John MacArthur in his study Bible writes this. He says, The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom is a vital theme in Scripture. He says, The crucial component of Scripture brings the whole story to its God-ordained consummation. Redemptive history is controlled by God. Amen? Amen? And as to the culmination of his eternal glory, redemptive history will end with the same precision, and exactness with which it began. The truths of eschatology, or the study of end times, are neither vague nor unclear, nor are they unimportant. As in any book, how the story ends is the most crucial and compelling part. So it is with the Bible. Scripture notes several very specific features of the end planned by God. In the Old Testament, there is a repeated mention of an earthly kingdom ruled by the Messiah, the Lord Savior, who will come to reign. Associated with that, the kingdom that will be the salvation of Israel, the salvation of Gentiles, the renewal of the earth from the effects of the curse, and the bodily resurrection of God's people who have died And then he says, finally, the Old Testament predicts that there will be the uncreation or disillusion of the universe. In other words, one day everything we see around us, as beautiful it is, is going to be gone. It's going to be burned up. God's going going to start all over. And we're going to live in a brand new earth, in a new heaven, the Bible says. And he says, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, which will be the eternal state of the godly and a final hell for the ungodly. Think about that. There's only two places you can go. It's either heaven, to be with God in eternal glory, or hell, which is really the absence of the the presence of God's holiness, except for his wrath. You're going to feel the wrath of God upon your soul for all of eternity if you do not know and you have not come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Um, The Bible in the New Testament also speaks of the church as his bride. And so he must return to take her to the wedding feast. And so there's indications throughout the New Testament that, you know, this this is planned out by God. Um. Nor will the, the king permit Satan to rule the world forever. He kind of runs around now and, and does what he wants, but it's under the purview of God. Satan has lost the battle, my friend. God is still in control. Don't ever forget that. We don't need to bind Satan. We don't need to do all that crazy stuff because that's, we don't have the power to do that. We're not called to do that. You don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. Um, You only see verses that people rip out of context and apply in a wrongful way. Um, But he's not going to allow Satan to rule forever. Christ will take back what is his rightfully. Christ's humiliation in his first coming also demands that he return in glory. You think of the way Christ came the first time, very humble. But the second coming will not be humble at all. Uh, The last view the world has of him cannot be humble as a victim who died on a cross. That won't be the last view. The return of Jesus Christ is therefore the climax of all redemptive history and the purpose of God when he brings it all to pass. And so Paul wanted to remind these Thessalonians of this great hope and to encourage them to stand firm even though they're having to deal with persecution and all the stuff that's going on in their church and in their society there as Christians. And you know what? We can identify with that. We live in a very dark area of the country. Um, you know, this Bay Area, especially the peninsula, is very tough to be a Bible believing conservative Christian uh, because most people aren't. And so, but that's why God has us here. You know, don't lose hope in that. Um, their hope, like that of all, I would say, suffering Christians, was that one day Jesus will come back and what's he going to do he's going to come back and he's going to give us relief it's it's going to be a relieving time when christ comes back and so these features are explained further in the new testament throughout Um, you you read the story of the new testament you have this king the king of the jews who was rejected he was executed but he promised all along to come back, and he said he's going to come back in a, in a different way. He's going to come back in glory. He's going to come back bringing judgment. He's going to come back in resurrection and his kingdom for all who believe. And so when you, when you think about these things, um, remember that. And it's, it's hard sometimes to realize that, that God will judge people, that he will come back in judgment, um, but you know what? There's going to be also incredible number of Gentiles from every nation, the Bible says, who will be included in the redeemed. It's not just Israel. It's Gentiles as well. Israel will be saved, the Bible says. He'll be grafted back into the, the root of blessing from which was temporarily excised there. But Israel's promised kingdom will be enjoyed with the Lord Savior reigning on the throne in a renewed earth, and he's going to exercise power over the entire world. He's going to take back that right, rightful authority that is his, and he's going to receive our worship and our honor as we do. See, here, this is just temporary. The idea we come and we sing praises to the Savior, and we're going to be doing that for all of eternity, you know, uh, wrap your mind around that. I, that's why sometimes I run into Christians, well, I don't like to sing. I said, you know what you're going to be doing for all of eternity? <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you might want to rethink this. Uh, start practicing now. Uh, and so it's, it's amazing. This, this kingdom will come, and all that we see around us that's stained by sin will be gone. Um, and, and God will recreate it. And so but when you come to this this part of of this 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 book I think the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment of unbelievers which the Bible speaks of it speaks of a place called hell and that's what's going to happen there they're going to be punished for all eternity it's probably one of the most difficult teachings in the Bible to comprehend and to embrace it is it's hard You think of those that we know today in our families, our neighborhood, whatever, that we love, as well as other people around the world, and we think of them, wow, if they don't know Christ, they're going to be suffering eternally, forever, with no hope of redemption at that point. And and that's hard to wrap our minds around when we stop and we say, well, wait a minute, but the character of God is, he's a loving God. How do you put those two together? You know, how do you how do you make that make sense? And then you stop and you think about all the millions throughout the throughout the world and throughout history who have never even heard of the name Jesus. Right? And you say what happens to them? <laughs> Most of them loved their families probably. They they acted maybe decently toward others. Uh, you know, all non-Christians are not horrible people who who just, you know, Worship Satan. There's a lot of good people, according to the world standards, who have not put their faith or trust in Christ. And you stop and you ask that, you ask yourself the question, how can God consign them to eternal punishment? We, we, we think, well, wait a minute, that kind of, you know, the punishment exceeds the crime. Um, we think that. Now, we know our doctrines teach us differently, but our hearts go there. Um, the difficulty of this doctrine has led some, Bible-believing Christians even, evangelicals. Um, one, uh, the, the, the late Anglican pastor uh, John Stott, who I've read a lot of his books and stuff. But he, in, in the end, he basically rejected modified this idea that God was going to punish unbelievers for all eternity. Which is hard to comprehend, someone of such a a stature theologically. And there's a lot of pastors today in churches across the world who basically reject the idea that unbelievers will consciously forever experience hell. They don't want to embrace that. Um, As recently as 2011, Rob Bell, who was a pastor of a megachurch, and he wrote a book called Love Wins. And it challenged the traditional understanding of hell and the traditional understanding of Christ's substitutionary atonement. And so those who reject the eternal punishment of the wicked but still claim to believe the Bible have a problem. <laughs> how could you do that? How, how could you say, well, I believe the Bible, but I, I reject hell. I don't, I don't sign off on that. Um, and they basically have two options if you think about it some argue that the wicked will suffer for a period of time and then they'll be annihilated which uh, Seventh-day Adventists believe that they believe that if you die outside of Christ you, you're, you're, you go through a period of suffering but then you're basically no more it's not for all eternity um, eternity doesn't really mean eternity is what they say Others, the other option people use who who hold to this and and, and reject hell is they turn to scriptures like 1 uh, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, excuse me, verse 20, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes this, he says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then it says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so some people, the second option, if they, if they say, well, you're going to be punished for a little while, and then you're just annihilated, your body is no more, so you don't feel any pain for all of eternity. The other view is what we call universalism. Okay, and this is the view. They use a verse like this where it says he will reconcile all things to himself. And they'll say, oh, well, see, that means everybody's going to get saved in the entire world. And some of them even go as far as to say Satan, and the demons will be saved, which is just crazy, because there's no indication in Scripture that there's any redemption even offered for fallen angels whatsoever. But, you know, they have to have it all or nothing. That's how they look at this. And so, you know, in a line of of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, he, he called the sermon, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners the justice of God in the damnation of sinners and he, he said this I think that we struggle with the doctrine of eternal of the eternal punishment of the wicked to the degree listen to this that we do not understand or we do not embrace the infinite holiness of God and the infinite heinousness of sin against such a holy being. See, whenever we shake our fist at God, for whatever, it could be a little trial we're having, it could be a big trial we're having, it could be an injustice we see in the world, and we say, God, how could you? How would you dare allow something? to? What are we doing? We're attributing unholiness, unrighteousness, wrongdoing, wrong motive, to a God that we proclaim to be holy. You can't do that. It's just it's two opposites. You can't, you can't have that. Either God is not holy, and he's not just, and he's not righteous. Maybe he's 95% holy. Maybe he's 95% just, but that 5%, that's what always gets him in trouble because he allows all this other bad stuff. to No, God has a purpose in this other stuff happening that we may not like, but he has a purpose. He has a plan in it. And whether we realize that God is absolutely holy and he's absolutely just, if you realize that God is that, then we have to understand that he he has no choice but to punish all sin. He couldn't be a righteous and good and just God if he was going to let even one little sin go without punishment. Uh, You know, I mean, we, we think about it, this way, I mean, the illustration breaks down a bit, but think about it if you went to court and there was somebody there who uh, raped and murdered five women. And they were your relatives. And you're waiting for the judge to pronounce judgment. He was found guilty. He admitted it. And the judge, on the day of the verdict being read and everything, he goes, okay, now I'm gonna pronounce judgment. You know, This was horrible, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. But you know what? I'm gonna give this person grace. I'm not gonna punish him for these things because I I think he's generally a good guy and I think that he'll change his ways. And so, therefore, you know, you're free, go ahead and go. What would you say? Whoa, stop! (laughs) That is unjust. That judge, there's a problem with that judge. And we're seeing this happen more and more now in our society, so that's not so far removed from reality. But the idea that God, who is holy, completely righteous, could do such a thing is unquestionable. Or he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't be righteous. And so what Paul does here is that he, he elaborates on God's judgment of the wicked, and he does that in order to bring comfort to these Thessalonian believers who were being persecuted. And so he he wants them to understand that, you know what? God has their back. In the end, God will have his way. And when we see that we have all repeatedly, uh, defiantly sinned, all of us have done this, against the holy, sovereign God of the universe, then we can understand why the punishment must be infinite. It can't just be for a year or two or three. Because God is infinitely holy. Um, And I know that that's hard for us to understand. But to be anything other than that, God would not be God if he were not just. He couldn't be. If he merely excused sins without punishment, he would not be a Righteous God. Either the sinner must be punishment, punished or in God's economy you have to have an acceptable substitute that may take that punishment. This is where the gospel comes in. This is where Christ is highlighted. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to be what? To be our substitute. Jesus didn't die, just didn't die on a cross. He died for you. He died for me. He died a specific death. He didn't die a general death. It's not like God said, okay, for anybody, you know, here's the cross, and Jesus is going to die for everybody. No. He died for those who would be saved. And so when the Lord Jesus comes... When he is revealed from heaven, he will deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers. That's the sorrow. But he will also share his eternal glory with the saints. That's our joy. So you can see where when we're talking about the the coming of Christ, it's both joy and sorrow. It's a basket of emotions, really. It's like when someone says, man, I just wish the Lord would come back today. And immediately your mind goes, yeah, well, I have a cousin or I have a brother who hasn't come to Christ yet, so I'm hoping maybe he'll, he'll wait a little while longer, right, because I'm working on him. I want to see them in heaven, right? And so th- there's, there's tension there, and, and we understand that. But the first thing here, we'll just see if we can get through the, the first thing, the first point, we'll just bring it up, and then we'll hit it in a couple weeks. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in a mighty display of power and glory. The key statement of our text is really found there in verse 7. Look at what it says. It says, And to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. How is, it gonna ha- how is he going to grant us relief? When the Lord Jesus is revealed, it says, from heaven with his mighty angels. When he is revealed from heaven. And then if you look down at verse 10, it says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. He has been the exalted as the, the sovereign Lord of the church. He's been the faithful high priest unto God for his people, the Lord Jesus has. But the day is coming when he will be, um, the Bible says that he's, he will be revealed. And it gives the idea that he's not revealed now. The day will come when he will be revealed. Uh, Paul often uses this word coming, the coming of the Lord. He uses the Greek word parousia. Parousia, it speaks of the presence of God. Um, there's another word that we get the word epiphany from. When he uses the, usually it's translated in our English Bibles, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's usually the, uh, the, uh, the epiphany It's a Greek word, epiphania, and it's found in 1 Timothy 6.14, 2 Timothy 8, Titus 2.13, when it speaks of the appearing of the Lord. But here, in verse 7, he uses a different word, a, a Greek word that we would, the English word would be the apocalypse. Have you ever heard of apocalypse? The apocalypse of coming, you know, end times kind of stuff. Well, it means that Christ will be revealed it means that Christ will be revealed because He's hidden now. Think about it; He's hidden. You don't see Jesus walking around on Earth. Um, he's not absent from us as believers. His presence is here because He dwells in His people. But when He comes again on the clouds of glory, the Bible indicates that every eye will see Him. Everyone will realize, "Wow, here comes here comes the Lord." In Matthew chapter six. Verses 62 to 64, it talks about this. It says, and the high priest stood up, and they were questioning Jesus. You remember that? And he says, have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? In verse 63, Jesus says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of, the, the son of God. And Jesus says in verse 64, It says, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, where? It says, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's where Christ is now. He's at the right hand of the Father. The, The side of power, it speaks of God's power and that's where Jesus Christ is. So the next time you hear one of your friends say, Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw Jesus out of it. No, you didn't. He's in heaven. He's not making little visits for you to see him. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Can you imagine that? Every eye around the globe is going to see the Lord coming. Even those who pierced him. Wow. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. On account of him, verse 7 of Revelation 1 says, his coming will be bodily, it will be visible, and it will be glorious. It will be glorious. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, it's described as this, and while they were, remember when they were at the ascension of Christ, Uh, when he was done here on earth, he went back to heaven. It says, and while they were gazing up into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? What are you doing? (laughs) This is Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, and he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the Lord is going to return in the same way that he went up. He will be accompanied by his mighty angels it says in flaming fire and and that's a symbol of of judgment fire a lot of times indicates the presence of God think about the burning bush right, cloud of fire all this stuff that that speaks of the presence of God and so we're saying he's he's gonna come back with his mighty angels in flaming fire and it's a lot of this language that the New Testament uses, Old Testament commentators point out that this is the same language that they used of theophanies, what they called theophanies in the Old Testament, and what that is is when the Lord would appear in a bodily form. That's what you call a theophany. Before Christ came to earth, he would appear in the Old, Old Testament in various, in various ways. And it was language that was used of of Yahweh in order to uh, show his deity, and it's applied to Christ. And so when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, the Bible says that people who haven't put their faith and trust, it's too late at that point, by the way. The the Bible says today is the day of salvation, right? That's why it says that, because we don't know when the Lord is coming back. We don't know. Uh, Some people say, well, can you be saved after the rapture? Sure you can. There's going to be people saved after the rapture. It's going to be a lot harder because the Bible says that there's going to be kind of a... God's going to grant them a, a delusion of mind. It's going to be difficult. But there will be people saved after the rapture. But when Christ returns, you know, we've we got to think about that. He says, when the Lord returns from heaven, unbelievers will cry out. It says in Isaiah chapter 2, I'll just read a couple of verses here for you. In 2.10 in of Isaiah, it says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. From before, listen to the language, the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. You see both sides, right? Those who know Christ are going to say, wow, this is a glorious, splendid, wonderful, majestic event. Others are going to want to hide because they're going to see the terror of God. In verse 19 of Isaiah 2, it says, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. See, a lot of times we think of God as this loving God. And right now we live in a day of an age of grace, right? The church age is, is the age when Jesus came and he, he came kind of in an obscure way, a very humble way. It's a little baby, <clears throat> And he had to experience taking on a body and growing up and and growing and learning and wisdom, all those things, in his physical, fleshly body. But he was still God, 100% God. And so the Bible says that, you know what, that's the first time he came and he went humbly to the cross and he he died on a cross. And that's what provides our salvation. But in, in Revelation... Chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, it says this, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, so it's including everybody, slave and free, it says hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Verse 16, calling to the mountains and rocks, this is how bad it got, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the, listen, wrath of the Lamb. From the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And then he asks the question, who can stand? And it's rhetorical, no one. No one will stand on that day. The joys and the sorrows in God's final judgment. He is coming back. Make no mistake about it. In 2 Peter 3, 4, it tells us in the end times, mockers will say, what will they say? They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? You Christians have been saying this for so long. Thousands of years, oh yeah, he's coming back, he's coming back. But you know what? In the end, these same people who are mocking the return of Christ are the ones who are going to be shocked. They're the ones who are going to be terrified when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in power and glory. The Lord is hidden now. A lot of people even believe he's dead. We used to sing a, a song in, in youth ministry, God's not dead, he's alive. And I thought, yeah, that's a, it's a good song. It was a good little chorus we used to sing. And you see where people mock God. You know, you see people in debate saying, oh, if your God's so powerful, then why wouldn't he strike me dead if I'm, you know. Well, God is also a gracious God right now. But when he comes back, he's not coming back as a gracious king. He's coming back to take out his vengeance on all who stood against him. And so they're going to be shocked when this day comes. And now we, we have the glory of the Lord, but it's hidden from us, is it not? We don't even as believers experience the glory of God completely. We can't. That's why it says in verse 7, the Lord Jesus will be revealed, verse 10, when he comes. We are always looking for the coming of Christ. And and when he uses that word coming, that Greek word parousia, it's primarily related to indicating that believers are looking for the coming of the Lord. Um, Because that word kind of indicates that there's a... There's an arrival of his presence, right? Right now, we don't experience fully the presence of God. We can't, right? We're in a sinful body. We're here on earth. I mean, we, we, we are a little bit removed. And yet, we know that he lives within us. We know that the Holy Spirit resides within us. All that's true. But we still don't have our glorified bodies. And so, one day... We will be able to love him, and when we see him face to face, the Bible says presently we love him even though we don't see him, right? We love him even though we don't see him. Someday, we will see him, and we will love him fully. And so that's what this is indicating. This is what Paul is trying to encourage them with. You know what? Even though you're going through hard times, and some of you right now, to be honest with you, are going through very hard times, difficult times in your lives. But you know what? God sees that. God knows that. He knows exactly what you're going through. And it's up to Him to relieve that pressure or to increase that pressure. Because it's it's from His hand. It's, it's It's a purposeful thing that we experience these things. It's not just Oh, the devil must be winning because, boy, I'm experiencing pain right now. No. Maybe God wants you to be in pain. Maybe God wants you to go through suffering. And I know that flies in the face of what so many people tell people today. Oh, no, if you know Jesus, everything's happy, happy, happy. No, it's not. Jesus never said that. He said, if you want to follow me, great, but pick up your cross, what? Daily. Die to yourself daily. It's not about you. That's his whole point. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. See, and that's what we're called to do as a church in this society that says, no, 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 live for yourself. Claim your rights. You know, you have the right. You have this. No, 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 we don't. We don't. Everything we have comes from the hand of God's gracious hand. And everything we know about God is by his grace. And so when he speaks of this apocalypse, when he talks about the coming and he uses the word apocalypse rather than parousia, it's really speaking of the coming to unbelievers and what they're going to experience because it's going to be a totally different experience, (laughs) completely different. We're going to, as believers, embrace Christ. We're going to be with him for all eternity. But those who don't know Christ, those who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ will be repelled by Christ's coming. So much so that they'll try to crawl in every hole and ask the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from his terror and his judgment. And this is not some fanciful story. This will happen just as the Bible describes it. And so we need to prepare our hearts. We need to take time to prepare the hearts of those whom we love. And how do we do that? We give them the gospel. First of all, we obey the gospel, right? Because the gospel is not just a message that you hear. You know, this is what modern evangelism tells us. Oh, just, just you know, say this prayer and, and everything's fine. No. No. There's going to be people who say that had said the prayer and stand before the Lord, and he's going to say, you know what? I don't even know who you are. Be gone from me. You call me Lord, doesn't matter. Oh, you've healed people, doesn't matter. I don't even know who you are, Jesus is going to say to them. But what is indicative is that have you obeyed the gospel? Have you forsook all to follow Christ, including yourself? That's what it takes. It takes a complete abandonment to yourself. And say, you know what, Jesus, now I'm ready. Yeah, whatever you want, whatever you want, I'm ready to follow you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us a salvation is so great. And Lord, this is hard to talk about judgment. It's hard to talk about uh, thinking of loved ones being eternally in hell forever. But Lord, that should be hard. It should pain us to speak of such things because those things are true. And yet, Really, you've given us the answer. You've given us the gospel as we live for you, as we pray for their lost souls, as we are obedient to the gospel ourselves and obedient to the the call to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. Lord, that doesn't mean we have to go to India. Maybe we just have to go to our backyard and speak to our neighbor over the fence or speak to the person at the supermarket or at the gas station or the friend we have coffee with once a week. Help us to get over our timidity when it comes to the things of Christ. Because I think we all can look around and believe that the days are short. Your coming is closer today than it was yesterday. And so, Father, we want to embrace your son when he does return for his church and then when we come back in glory with him. Lord, we look forward to all these things, but, Lord, now you've left us here for a purpose. And some of us are going through hardships and struggles. And, Lord, we can either shake our fist in defiance at you, a holy God, or we can comply and say, you know what, God, I don't know why this is happening in my life. I don't like it, but Lord, I know it's from your hand because nothing comes into the life of a believer unless it's from his Father's hand, from God's hand. And so, Father, we pray that you would enable those who are dealing with hardship now to fully trust in you not to remove the hardship, but to take them through it so that they can experience your purpose in allowing the struggles there rather than just run away from it. And Father, we pray for any here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, we know that ultimately it's your work in their heart, but Lord, we're also called to obey the gospel. We're also called to surrender our hearts to you, our lives to you as our supreme Lord and Living God, and so we pray today that you would do that work. That you would show people, even in the hearing of this message online or later, say, listen to the broadcast, whatever it might be. Lord, we ask that you would do that work in their heart to to draw them to Christ, as only you can. And Father, one last thing, I pray for. If there are any women here today who have, I know this is Sanctity of Life Sunday, but Lord, I know that. Um, In the world we live in, uh, abortion is so commonplace. I'm sure there's those even here who have struggled with that. And, And Lord, I pray that you would allow them to take that to you and that they would confess that to you. And Lord, that you would give them understanding that there is complete forgiveness in Christ. We're not called to live in shame for the rest of our lives over something that was done in ignorance years ago. And so Lord, we there's any women here dealing with that, we lift them up and we pray for them, that you would make them whole emotionally. And Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And we just pray that you would bless our time of fellowship across the way as well and the food to our bodies in Jesus' name. Amen.